said, let's turn to Romans chapter 1 this morning, where we'll kind of catch up. Paul has written this letter to the Romans three years before he doesn't know he's going to actually get to go to Rome. According to the will of God, he's going to be arrested. He's going to go through a series of various trials. We saw that at the, at the uh, end of the book of Acts. And he'll end up in Rome. But though he has a heart to go there, he's not been able to go there yet. And we make the assumption that every one of these churches that was started on early in the first century of the, the Christian church, that they were started because of Paul. But the church in Rome wasn't started because of Paul. And we don't actually know how it started. We make the assumption, and many would probably agree with this, that in Acts chapter 2, when all of the Jewish believers were going there to Jerusalem to worship, to celebrate Passover, uh, excuse me, Pentecost, they got there, and during that time in Acts uh, chapter 2, it seems that Jesus, according to his promise, sent the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, to empower those disciples that were waiting on him there, and when he did, he sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues from other countries. Basically, they, they spoke in foreign languages by the power of the Spirit. And all who were gathered there to celebrate Passover, excuse me, keep saying that, but Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I love this because the Lord uses these fishermen, these tax collectors, and he gives them the ability to speak a foreign language. They all prophesy, and they share the gospel in these foreign languages, and all the people there are wondering what in the world is going on because they're hearing this gospel message, but each one of them is hearing it in their language. Imagine if you were, you know, in, in some sort of city where everyone, there was lots of different foreign languages spoke. Maybe you're in a foreign country, and maybe you went to Mexico, and you're in the middle of the street and these guys come in and they're all speaking in your language and you've been surrounded for days by people that don't speak your language. And they're telling you about Jesus Christ. So when they responded to the gospel, they left the Feast of Pentecost receiving way more than they realized they were bargaining for. They head back to their home nations. They're not just carrying this, hey, we've received forgiveness, we got to celebrate the Lord but they are carrying the gospel message with them. They've received it. They've believed it. And now they are made ambassadors to their countries. Some of those people, we believe, were from Rome. So when they went home, they were like, hey, we, we got to use this message. We got to start a church or something because Jesus has changed our lives so much. We need to tell all we can tell. So they go back to Rome and start a church. That's the assumption we make. We don't know exactly how it happened. We don't know who started it. We just know that there was a church already formed in Rome. And Paul wrote last week in the beginning of this chapter, in verse 8, he said, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Paul heard about the church in Rome and he was just thanking the Lord. Hey, Lord, thank you that this message being spread through me is not just based upon me spreading it, that there's other people that are, have taken to heart what Jesus said and they're doing it. Thank you, Lord. I just want to impart something to that church even though I'm not able to go there. Now we know from our study in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, that Paul would eventually get to go there. Jesus told him that night when he was a little bit discouraged, he said, 
be of good cheer, Paul, because as you've spoken of me in Jerusalem, I'm going to send you to Rome and you're going to testify of me there as well. But this is before Acts chapter 23. Paul doesn't know whether or not he's going to be able to go to Jerusalem and actually come out alive. Because the last time he was there, he had light threatenings against his life. So remember that Paul is writing this from Corinth and he's waiting in Corinth. He spent a couple of years there and he's going on his third missionary journey, gathering money to bring back to the home church in Jerusalem who's going through a time of famine. And so the body of Christ over these different cities is providing for the body of Christ in another city for people that they don't know. And so Paul, while he's waiting on the Corinthian church, ministering to them there, he's also writing to a letter to, a letter to the people in Rome. So that's what we're reading. So as Paul writes this letter, he writes it in verse 7, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Now I, I listened to some other people teach this and they said, in the original text, the better rendering for this in verse 7 is not called to be saints, but he's writing to those who are called saints. And I love this because Lord, the Lord sees people not as what they are right now, but what they will be once they give their life to him. And so he says, called saints. Now when we think of saints, what do you guys think of? Do you think of the people that are in stained glass? They've got a halo over their head. They've been dead for a hundred years. Those are saints. At least that's the idea that gets portrayed from more, I guess, uh, high church, if you will. You know, in a lot of the Catholic churches and a lot of the Lutheran churches, you'll see these people that have been dead for years and they call them saints. But the Lord doesn't see it that way. He calls anyone who trusts in him saints. There are saints and there are ain'ts. Those who are saints and those who are not saints. If you've been saved by Jesus Christ, if you've responded to the call of salvation, you're a saint. You ain't an ain't. And I love that because the Lord, he sees us holy, redeemed, not because of anything that you and I have done because we know better. Hopefully, if you have a proper perspective on who you are, you realize that it's not because of anything you've done. You know, just this morning as I'm interacting with my family, getting ready to come to church, all kinds of sin going on. Not because I'm trying to, I'm trying to hit the mark, but I just, I fail so much. And the Lord's so patient with me. And He's willing to forgive. And so we think, well, I need to do this, this, and this, and then I'll be a saint. And the Lord says, you're a saint because you trust my son, who is the only one who lived up to what it takes to be right before me, righteous. And so here we are. Paul's introduced this letter. And he says there in verse 14, he says, I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. He hasn't gotten to go there yet, but he's going to tell them, I'm not ashamed of the gospel and I want to share it with you too, just so you have a, a, a really good understanding. Paul's been walking with the Lord for 20 years now, 20 years. Now, let me encourage you, if you've been walking with the Lord for any amount of time, God's never done teaching you all about Him. You're not ever arrived until you see Him face to face, until you go to be with Him. So you should be growing every day until you get to that point. And Paul is still growing, but he still takes what he does know. 
and he imparts it to these different churches. And here, not knowing whether or not he gets to go to them, he says, you know what? I'm going to write it all down so that you can be a partaker of what I was going to teach you anyway. And then if I get to be there, it's icing on the cake. So Paul, when he writes Romans, he's, this is not where he's, like most of his letters to the churches, like Galatians and Ephesians and First and Second Corinthians, he's writing to those churches to deal with specific issues that he knew they had questions about. But when he writes the book of Romans, he's writing it to the Romans, not knowing what they might have questions about. So he basically systematically deals with everything. Here's what the Christian faith is all about. Here's what it looks like to be a Christian and to live as a Christian. In uh, chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, he deals with the sinfulness of man. Last week we saw verse 1 through 17, he introduces the letter. But then from verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, he deals with the sinfulness of man. And he does that because I think sometimes we want to tell people what Jesus has done for us, providing salvation. But have you ever tried to throw a life vest to someone that doesn't know they're drowning? They're out there. They're getting blown and tossed. Maybe you go swimming in the summer and somebody's out swimming in a creek and they don't realize that they've, they're getting pulled down the creek and you're trying to save them. And they're like, I'm fine. What do you need to save me for? And I think sometimes we tell people about Jesus before they ever even realize they have a need for him. They think they're doing just fine. And most people are like that, good, bad, and otherwise. The good old boy down the street that will help you across the street, if he doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, he's going to go to hell. Going to heaven is not given to you because you're a good guy, or because you're a good gal, or because you do good things. There's nothing that you can do to earn salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 actually says this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, It's by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone would be able to brag about it, lest anyone should boast. It's the gift of God. We're going to find out later in Romans that, uh, <clears throat> just drew a blank, the wages of sin, what you earn by sinning, is death. But the gift of God, in contrast, is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So the only thing that you and I can do in order to earn anything is we earn hell. God is completely just. The only thing that we can earn by our own works, our own sweat, is hell. And he's going to spend a couple of chapters here laying out who all deserves hell. And what it does is it levels the playing field. And so before I get there, I guess I'm rushing ahead. Read in verse 16. He writes there, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Everyone. Any person you can think of that has sinned, done something against you, done something against God, you cannot come up with a sin that they cannot be forgiven. The only sin that will send you to hell and will not be forgiven is the blasphemy of Jesus Christ, saying that he's not God, not receiving salvation and forgiveness. But you have until the very last day, the last breath that you take, to ask God to forgive you. So he says it's the, the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. 
And then he says, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, anyone who's not Jewish. And then he says in verse 17, in it, and that it is a big it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. You want to know how to be righteous? You got to have the righteousness of God. And that's the theme of the book of Romans, the righteousness of God. Imagine it as a, uh, as a spotlight. The righteousness of God is something that's bright. It overshadows anything else. Any darkness that gets shined on by a spotlight, it reveals everything that's there. It's like those uh, vanity mirrors. You ever stand in front of the, one of those mirrors that has all the... It's got like 82 light bulbs right next to it. And you walk up to that mirror and you're like, hey, what do I need to do? And you flip on that light and it's boom. And all of a sudden, every little detail, every blemish, every, you know, white head, every black head, you know, everything that's wrong with your appearance, wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying everything that, that you see up there is really what's there because you've flipped on those 1800 lights. Keep adding more. Because the reality is the Lord, he is light. He's the light unto the world. And so when he shines on your light, life, he reveals a lot of stuff that you don't want anybody to know about. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that. Because when that light shined on my life, Paul says, it was the power of God to salvation. I didn't know I needed a savior until I saw how much nastiness I truly had. So he says it's the gift of God. But in verse 17, he says, it's the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, written, the just, those who are justified, made just as if they'd never sinned, the just shall live by faith. Anyone who is justified according to God shall live by faith. Now we think about being justified, we think of the day that we either went up at an altar call or responded to the gospel for the first time and said, Lord, I'm sinful, you are God, you are holy, I need your righteousness in order to be right with you. That's, we think of, okay, that's my step of faith. But it says there, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So it's like one step after another. So what does he mean there? Well, in my mind, in order to be justified by faith, it's, yes, number one, accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. But then it's also taking each steps each day in faith, trusting God's word to be true, and, and taking another step, receiving another truth, responding to it, repenting of another sin that you didn't even know was there, repenting of the ones that you do know are there. <clears throat> and as he loves you and shows you those things, responding in faith. I love this because in Romans chapter 12, he'll get to the point after he spends chapter after chapter revealing the truths, he says there in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I beseech you or I beg you, therefore, by the mercies of God, since God's been so merciful that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And then he says something. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That idea is to continually be transformed. Continually to put your life on the altar and say, Lord, I'm yours. What do you want to do with me today? 
to be continually transformed by the renewing of your mind. God will continually teach you new things and take out all the bad patterns and the bad habits. And then he says at the very end of verse 2, what is the reason for that? He says that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and that perfect will of God. How do I prove what the will of God is? From faith to faith. He makes that, that corollary. And he says, by subjecting your life to the will of God and by taking steps to obey him, you prove what his will is. When Jesus came to this earth and he subjected his life to doing only the will of the Father, not subjecting himself to man's opinion or to what other people thought he should do, he proved what the will of God was. And so we, being Christians, being little Christ, we ought to imitate him in the same way. And as we do that, we will prove what the good and holy and acceptable will of God is. People will see what we do in obedience to the Lord, and they will be encouraged to do the same. They'll be enlightened. They'll be encouraged. They'll be built up. They'll say, hey, someone else is trusting the Lord, and their walk doesn't look like mine. I... I don't do that, or I don't watch that. And it won't be because you have to, but because all of a sudden you want to do what the Lord wants you to do. And so he says, the just shall live by faith. And he's really picking up on what the prophet in the Old Testament said in Habakkuk. Now I'm just going to turn there real quick, but it's in the Minor Prophets in Hebrews, or excuse me, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, where there Habakkuk is writing to the nation of Israel and he's, he's basically said, Lord, I'll stand watch over the nation. And then the Lord answered Habakkuk in verse 2. And he said this to Habakkuk. He said, write the vision, make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and, while, and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold the proud, he says, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. So he makes that contrast between those who are proud and reject God's um, commands and those who will live by faith, will trust the Lord, will make those daily steps. So as he picks up that, that piece there, he stops and he's going to turn the corner. He's given us this per picture the righteousness of God. And he says there, it's revealed from faith to faith, that is, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And then he turns the corner. He's just told us how the righteousness of God is revealed. And now he's going to tell us about the wrath of God. Now, I don't know about you guys, but this isn't a popular message to tell the world that God has wrath on those who are disobedient. So he gets very specific on what is what the wrath of God is going to be revealed against. Sometimes we, we want to know, okay, well, Lord, what are you calling me to? But what, what also are you calling me from? You know, and we get this stark, it's like a blackboard. It's like a big board is being put on the wall. He's going to say, this is what the wrath of God will be revealed against. And then he shines his light on our hearts. He goes, are any of these things in you? And then he reveals to us, and he'll reveal to us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. He's going to say, for all have sinned 
and fallen short of the glory of God. So by the time he gets done revealing what the wrath of God is revealed against, there's not one person left standing that can say, well, I'm good. I'm totally fine. I don't need God's righteousness. And it makes me, again, think of that passage where Jesus is confronted with the Pharisees who have brought to him a person, a woman, who's been caught in the act of adultery. And she's standing there. And they go, hey, this woman, she was caught in the act of adultery. What are you going to do, Jesus? And so he stands there and he says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he starts writing in the sand. And I oftentimes wonder if he's writing down what Paul was saying here. Or even just going simply as this, given the, uh, the Ten Commandments. Hey, are you even following the top ten? Now, we don't know what he was writing. But while he was sitting there and writing in the sand, each one of those men were convicted. And as they were convicted, they left. They walked away. And then when he looked up, all the accusers were gone. He looked at the woman who was caught in adultery. He showed compassion. He said, woman, where are your accusers? And she said, they're all gone. He said, neither do I accuse you. Go your way. Sin no more. He didn't say, go back to what you were doing. I'm fine with it. He didn't wink at sin. He said, go and sin no more. I've forgiven you. And I love that because the Lord, he pinpoints sin in our lives, not to condemn us. John chapter 3 verse 17 says, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that through him, the world might be saved. And so when we read these following verses, think about that. The Lord didn't write all these things down so we could go to the world and go, what's wrong with you? You were caught in the act of adultery. You're a homosexual or whatever the thing might be. But to go, hey, God died for that sin too, just like he did my little sin of being a liar or my little sin of being covetous. He died for the big ones and the little ones. They're all equal in his eyes. All sin takes us to hell. It causes death. And so he says in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what ungodliness? All ungodliness. And I looked up the Greek word. Actually, I didn't, but I always say this. I looked up the Greek on that, and that word actually just means all. All ungodliness. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This isn't a standard that you and I came up with. Paul wasn't ashamed of the, the poignancy of the gospel saying that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because it wasn't his standard. He was revealing to those that would listen this is God's standard. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. You don't have to be ashamed of that. People start calling you a bigot. Just go, look, if I'm a bigot because I'm saying that sin will be judged, then you're saying that God's a bigot, and I'm going to say that his standard will stand forever. You know, and, and I love what 1 Peter says. It says, you know, um, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will remain forever. That's his judgment included. To, so to make a judgment based on what God's word said, we don't get to judge people and send them to hell. That's, God, that's on God, and I'm glad. Because if I had to make that judgment, I would be very lenient. I would be an unjust judge. But God is perfectly just. And so when he looks at it, he doesn't make an unjust call. He judges without partiality. So I'll finally move forward. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness 
and unrighteousness of men. Remember, we talked about in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, but also the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of man is revealed. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their hearts, or excuse me, in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. When you reject God's standard, you're going to pick up somebody else's. Now, it might be your standard of righteousness, but you're going to pick up a standard that's going to be fallible. God's standard doesn't change. Ours does. My opinion on things is it's blown by the waves, unless it's according to what God has said. But he says there, since the creation of the world, in verse 20, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. I love that because you see the character, even the uh, even the the relationship between the Godhead is seen in creation. And I say that because in Hebrews it says that Jesus Christ is the reflect image of God the Father. Now, how do I understand that from creation? Well, think about it. How many light sources do we have in the world? We have one. What is it? It's the sun. But what is the light that shines light at nighttime? It's the moon. Where does the moon get its light from? It, it reflects the sun. It doesn't put off anything. Only the sun does. Everything rotates around the sun. But that moon has just the right kind of material in it that when light shines on it, it shines all the way up from the thousands of miles away. It doesn't just put out light, but it actually lights <laughs> up. The nighttime. I love that because Jesus Christ, he lights it up. When it's the darkest, his light shines the brightest. Because he is the reflect image of God the Father, the source of all light. I love that. So even in something as simple as that, we can see the character. We can see how God reveals himself through creation itself. And then he continues, verse 22. Well, verse 21, he says, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. I love that because we oftentimes think of those who are godless, those who are unrighteous, as those who are out killing people. But it says here that one of the characteristics of those who are foolish and reject God is they're not even thankful. Let me ask you, do you have a thankful heart? Do you reflect the character of an unrighteous person just by being unthankful? Verse 21, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 14. I'll give you a moment because I went ahead and marked my pages, so I have a little bit of a you know, head start there. Psalm chapter 14. 
verse 1, it starts like this. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven, verse 2, upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. I love this because what it says there is if you're, if you want to find out who a fool is, it's someone who says there is no God. But if you look up the original on this, the English version of it is a little bit off. Because it doesn't say the fool has said in his heart there is no God. It says the fool in his heart has said no God. Like when you're children, you give them something specific. You say, this thing that I've given you has to be done this way. And they say, uh-uh. Now, they're being a fool when they do that because what they're rejecting is that you know the best way to do it. Now, not all things are that way. There's some things that are just, you know, we think that that's the best way to do it and there's an easier way because we've always done it that way. We think that's the only way. But there are some things where it's like, this is the one way that's the best. Trust me, I've tried them all. We tell our kids that and they go, what do you know? Well, they don't realize you've been along, alive a lot longer and so you've had the opportunity to fail a lot more in order to come up with these conclusions. But I love this because when someone says, no God, I'm rejecting you, I'm rejecting your counsel, I'm rejecting your leadership in my life, what it does is it opens them up to all kinds of other things that will never fulfill, that will never guide them. They'll always be let down by those ideologies. God is above creation. He's above our lives. Before we existed, He was already there. No one created Him. He always has been. And so the wisdom of God is far beyond what we can ever learn during this lifetime. Many people think, if I need wisdom, I just got to learn from experience. You can't experience enough to surpass the wisdom of God. You can't counsel God. He is, in fact, wisdom. And so to reject God means to open yourself up to all kinds of other foolishness. And so notice what happens in, back in Romans 1, in verse 22, it says, Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God, rejecting it, for the lie. And instead they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. If you don't serve God with your life, beware, you're going to end up serving something else. If you don't serve God with your time, with your finances, with just everything that you are, you will find yourself serving other things with those same resources. And you'll end up hurting yourself in the long run. You'll run after passions and lusts and things that you think will fulfill your life. And what you'll end up doing is spending your life, wearing yourself out. Nothing else can sustain you. When you serve God, you know what He does? He gives you, he gives you the energy and the boldness to do what He calls you to do. When you serve your job, when you serve your, uh, your possessions, when you serve your children, it wears you out. And you all know that. You know, I, when I was in high school, I had this, 
this awesome car. It was my favorite car, you know. We went to a car show in DeCoin, Illinois. And uh, and I really liked these cars I was seeing, and I didn't know what they were. And my dad, he's a car guy, and he said that's a that's an SS Monte Carlo. And it was like the range of like eighty two, where the square body, all the way to like eighty seven, eighty eight. I loved them; they were cool. So I wanted one, and my dad was like, "We can make that happen. We can go on the internets." And back then, it wasn't as easy as it is now. We went to Auto Trader online. We we're making all these road trips to go find my first car. And we finally found it, and then we brought it back. I was 14, put it in the garage, and we started working on it. That thing took a lot of my time. I was buffing it, cleaning it up, and next thing you know, I was driving it to school years later, not when I was 14. Um, they did have a driving age for you younger ones. I'm not that old. But I was driving to school, and then I noticed that the thing would drip on my leg when I made a left-hand turn in the rain. It had T-tops. So then what do you do? You start taking the thing apart. You're going to fix it. You start putting Bondo in there. You start buying the new seals because they still sell them. You can buy them from GM. So i got to work a little more, earn the money to buy the seals, and, and then i got to fix it. And then, hey, put all the T-tops back on, drive to school, it still leaks. It still wasn't fixed. So now what? Well, I just kind of lived with it. But then you're like Febreze the thing because mold's growing in there and so I drive, I live on a, on a black, uh, not on a blacktop road, on a gravel road that's a mile long, and I got a black car. So what do, we, what do you think I'm doing all the time? Washing the car. And then the thing, and then one day I'm on the way home from uh, something that was going on, it was raining. But I want to see how fast this thing's going to go. And I didn't wreck it, long story short, but I'm going. I'm like, hey, I'm pegged at 85. I don't know how fast I'm going, but I'm going faster. Next thing you know, what happens? Well, those old hoses, it's a 1980s car, the radiator hoses blow off, and there's antifreeze ever, everywhere, all over the side of the car, and we got to fix it on the side of the road. You know when you're, I won't tell you where it's at because it doesn't really matter, but it's in that low area right before you get to Doe Run. It's that big, long, straight stretch. I wasn't on curves. Anyway, we pulled in on that, that little bridge there, and we had to, finally we realized we could tighten back up those hose clamps, we had a dime or a nickel, so leave change in your car. It's helpful sometimes. But that rabbit trail aside, my point is, is no matter what I did to that car, it always needed more from me. Whether it was gas, an oil change, rotate the tires, new tires. You know, if I start to put my hope in that car always being just right, next thing you know, even if it is just right, somebody's going to door ding me. And all of a sudden, my hope is lost. Somebody, you know, my car, and it didn't have a dent in it. And then it, it always needs more. And that's true with cars, that's true with anything you own, it, 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 it takes a lot of your time. And what the Lord says is, I want a relationship with you. I want your time, I want your finances, I want everything. Not because you owe them to me, but because they're mine anyway. I gave them to you to use. And what you're going to find is, as you'll use those things to serve the Lord, He'll always give you more of them. Not maybe as much as you would want, but He'll give you what you need. And when you serve Him, your life will not feel like it's constantly being sucked from, but he'll fill you with all the things that you need. But in the contrast, you see this group of people that have rejected God's counsel. They've made images. They've taken birds and they've started worshiping them. They've started worshiping animals. They've, and, and they've done all these things in the hopes that those animals that they made out of a log will bless them, even though they know they made them. They serve the creature rather than the creator. And in Exodus chapter 10 excuse me, verses 20, God lays out the, the most simple base commands 
And he tells them, Exodus 20, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I brought you out of bondage so you can be free and you keep trying to pick up these idols and they put you back in bondage. He says, therefore, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me, little g. In other words, you shall not serve anything before you serve me. You shall not serve anything except me. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This isn't like the jealousy of a, a boyfriend over his girlfriend that's unrighteous. This is like the jealousy over a creator that made you and I and deserves our worship. He says, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing mercy, remember that. God's judgment is always paired with God's mercy. Not giving us what we deserve, he says there, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Not because you have to, because you want to. I'll give you the desire to do that. And if you'll keep my commandments, I'll bless your life. And I'll bless thousands of generations after you by your testimony of me. And it started all the way back in Exodus. Paul's just basically expounding in the New Testament version of the Old Testament and, and, it's, and saying God has his best interests in mind for you if you'll just subject your life to him. So verse 26, and we'll close this chapter. Basically, all of these things from verse 26 to the end, the wrath of God revealed against all ungodliness, because not because God hates people, but because they've rejected, they've hated God, they've rejected His counsel, and so the result of that is what? Consequences. You know, we tell our kids not to do certain things, they reject our counsel, and then when the consequences come around, they're like, why, why, why do I have to go through this? Why is life so hard? And you just have to look at them and go, I told you. I tried to warn you. Those are consequences of the thing you did a while ago. You know, you don't have to pay right away, but you usually got to pay later still. And so it says there, verse 26, for this reason, because they rejected the creator, they served the creature rather than the creator. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. He just gave them. We want this thing. We don't want you, God. Okay, you can have it. God sometimes finally stops arguing with them. He says, go for it. You can have it. But you're going to find out that it's going to let you down. It says there in verse 26, This reason God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with co men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the pen penalty of their error which was due to them. This is talking about homosexuality. Charles Spurgeon, when he taught this passage, he says, these three verses, read them when you go home. It's too shameful to even read them in a congregation. He said that because back in that day, it wasn't commonplace. 
but it was still happening. And Paul is writing to Romans who were known for debauchery. They were known for orgies to be very blunt. And so Paul's saying those things that they're doing, they're doing them because they reject God. And because of that, they desire something else that will fulfill them. And in their experience in trying to find something that will fulfill them, they found something that they thought fulfilled them, but actually hurts their own bodies. Sexual sin is the one way that we sin against God where we actually harm our bodies. And we know that because even in the history as homosexuality has become more and more prominent, and even now we're on TV, look at them, they're, they're, they're saying, go for it. You need to be free. You should be able to do whatever you want. But if you know the dirty side of it, it's basically their bodies are being harmed because they weren't made to do what they're doing with them. Look at AIDS and HIV back in the 70s and the 80s. It's promiscuity kind of ramped up, so did STDs. And the thing that they wanted the most, their freedom, is what's going to cause them physical bondage. And what is for many people. And we, on TV and in our, our media, it's praised as, hey, they're, they're liberated. But the reality is their freedom that they're taking is actually putting them in a place where they're going to be judged by God. But even now, physically, they're experiencing the wrath of God on their actions. And it's sad because many of them, because of the corruption that's even happening in the church, where churches are not teaching what the Bible says about this, they're kind of candy-coating it, and even accepting people into the church that are continuing in a homosexual lifestyle, not repenting. It's one thing to accept people in to tell them the truth. It's a whole other thing to condone it. I'm not saying don't invite them to church. Invite them to church. Let the Word of God teach them that the thing that they're doing is going to harm them. But at the same time, sometimes we let them into the church, call them Christians, act like it's fine, and then, next thing you know, we're allowing them to be pastors and leading the church. And the Lord will judge that. It's corruption in the church. It's the world affecting the church in a way that we need to guard against because the Word of God is very clear on this subject. And there's coming a time very shortly where uh, people like myself that will say this from a stool or from a pulpit will be put in jail for teaching such a doctrine because it's a hate crime. But the Lord, He loves us so much that He's willing to tell us our, about our errors, about the things that will harm us because He's made us for a better purpose. The marriage between the woman and the husband was meant to show the relationship between Jesus Christ, the husband, and the church, his bride. So to distort that and pervert it means to distort the image of God. And when we do that, it's blasphemy. So God gave them over to this, and basically him giving them over to their sin is the punishment itself. Verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness. These people are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They're whisperers. How many of us know people that whisper about other people? They're deceitful. They're talking about them behind their back. They're whisperers. 
backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, in other words, they don't know the difference between right and wrong, they are untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, they not only do them, but they also approve of those who practice them. Now let me ask you, is there anyone in here that wasn't at least a little bit touched by this? Because I look at murderers, I look at uh, boasters, inventors of evil things, and then I see the word disobedient to parents. And I go, well, how does that fit in the same list? But the Lord tells children, he says, if you will obey your parents, this is the one commandment that has a promise, then God will bless you with a long life. He'll take care of you. He'll protect you from wickedness. And I love that because in the Lord's eyes, being disobedient to your parents is just as bad as murdering somebody. And we think about it and we're like, eh, it's not that big a deal. I just told my parents I won't do that. And the Lord says, this is something I've given you if you'll obey your parents to keep you safe, to bless you. <clears throat> but verse 32, these people, knowing the righteous judgment of God, God gives us a conscience from the day we are born. Lucy, not even two yet, knows right from wrong already. She knows she's supposed to obey us. And we'll give her a command, and she'll say, no! And we'll tell her, if you disobey us, you'll get a spanking. And she says, no! And then sometimes she obeys, even though she said she won't. But there are times, believe it or not, she is cute. She's a cute little sinner. And as she is getting ready to do what we just told her not to do, she will look at us like, am I really going to get punished? She knows that she is being dis disobedient. And she's not even two yet. Now lots of people say, well, they don't know. Look at the look in her eyes. She knows better. And the reality is, is that God gives us a conscience. And he over and over again uses that conscience to convict us. Before I ever knew the Lord, I would lie to my parents. Not very often because they could tell when I was lying. And every time, because I would lie to them or disobey them, it would eat me up inside because I knew better. Not because I knew Jesus and was trying to please him, but because God gave me a conscience so that I would be convicted of sin from day one. And it says there, they know the righteous judgment of God, but they not only do the same, but they also approve of those who practice them. When you know the righteousness of God and you are disobedient, eventually you start approving of those who are also disobedient. And we need to be careful of that. God's called us to much greater than this. And don't get me wrong, we're not going to spend the entire book of Romans looking at the dark side. But I think sometimes we need to see what our sin looks like in the eyes of the Lord. And when we see that, we're just going, Lord, please give us some, bring us out of this dark hole. Show us something that we can hope in. And the Lord does that because in Hebrews chapter 11, he says this, and we'll close. Hebrews chapter 11, 
Remember he said the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So what is faith? Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says this. It says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, and it's the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders, those who went before us, obtained a good testimony. And then he says in verse 3, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of the things which are visible. How do we prove what is that good and that perfect and acceptable will of God? We subject ourselves to the righteousness of God. We receive it by faith, and then we trust it by faith. We daily take God's word for what it says, and we obey it, whether it feels good or not. Because as we do that, it becomes easier each time to take that next step of faith. Then God calls us to something harder. And as He stretches us, His character begins to build and the world begins to see Jesus Christ lived out in our lives and our lives are no longer what they were before we knew Him. And as He changes us from glory to glory, His character is revealed to the world. But it has to be done by faith. So, let me encourage you that next week, we won't talk about all this darkness. We're going to move on to the moral person. These are the things that are obvious to us, that are obviously sin. But then the Lord's going to look at people who are religious. He's going to say, they're also in need of a Savior. They also have tendencies to reject God's counsel. So we'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you reveal your character to us. And uh, we have the choice. You don't strong arm us. You don't force us. We can either reject you or we can receive you. And so, Lord, as we are subjected to your word and as we open it up, as we see ourselves as who we really are, Lord, give us the faith to trust that if we'll obey the simple things, the little things, that you'll change the big things. Father, thank you for Paul being willing to write such a comprehensive letter. Lord, uh, help me not to overcomplicate it. Help me just to teach it as it is. But Lord, as we're subjected to these truths and we see them, and we see our eyes or our lives really through your eyes, Lord, help us to take those steps of repentance, to trust you once again, to give another area of our lives to you and let you renew us, transform our minds, Lord, transform our lives, reveal your character to those who don't know you. Lord, thank you for loving us. As I see this passage, I see basically where I came from and some of the things that I still need to be worked on with. So Lord, thank you for your patience with me. Thank you for saving me. Lord, if there's anybody here that has some things you want to deal with them on, I pray that they wouldn't walk away without letting you deal with them. Lord, help them to repent. Help them to change. Sometimes we learn these things and they do. They have a shelf life. So Lord, help us not to walk away from this thing without letting you uh, just convict us of sin and of righteousness, and of judgment. And Lord, help our lives to match up with what we say we believe. Father, thank you for teaching us. I pray that as we sing this last song, that you would receive our words, and Lord, that you would receive our worship. If we worship you, Lord, it keeps us from worshiping other stuff. So Lord, uh, we just worship you during this time. In Jesus' name, amen.